0: Well, we read from chapter 5 from verse 13 because I thought it was important that we remind ourselves that John hasn't actually moved from this broad idea that runs through the entire book, this idea of assurance of salvation. That's the theme of the book of First John. You could summarize the entirety of these five chapters under that one heading. And so I just wanted to remind us that he hasn't left That theme. These final paragraphs are no different. John is culminating his teaching in these last few paragraphs by seeking to assure believers that they are born again and that they are going to be kept from the powers of the evil one. That's going to be our main idea this morning. And as we unfold that for the rest of our time this morning, we'll do a brief review of what it means for Christians to not practice sin. But then we'll also look at what Christians are actually up against. And finally, we'll look at this idea of the preservation or, pers- or protection of the Christian. So that's a, a road map, as it were, of where we're going this morning. But as I mentioned just now, as we cover this first portion of our text, it will come with a bit of review. And this should be no surprise to us because the book of 1 John isn't written like, say, the book of Romans that Paul wrote for us the book doesn't have doesn't start with an idea and then build upon it and there are new ideas introduced and then they're built on that from romans chapter one to the end of the book of romans or chapter 16 that's what we have but the book of first john isn't like that it doesn't have the same literary style john mostly employs the technique of amplification in this book he seeks to reaffirm and reinculcate the same teaching over and over again in a different way. It's really the same way that anyone would go about teaching their kids in the form of the beers. You don't move on from learning the alphabet one day to spelling pericope. That's not how we learn and that's not how we develop. I mean, most of us don't even know what that means. So, John, John here is teaching in a way that is like teaching small little kids reaffirming over and over these same themes. And so he revisits this idea of Christians not practicing sin once again. He circles back around to that idea. And that's what we have exactly in verse 18. And I want to just draw out some obvious points by way of review. The first one, which I think all of us should be familiar with, is that when we read of everyone who is born again, we're talking broadly about Christians. The new birth or regeneration is that transformative act that God performs on sinners, such that their hearts are changed from hating God, from being uh, those who don't love his law, from those who have no desire and love for him, to those who actually care for him, love him, desire him. That's the act of the new birth that John is referring to there. And throughout the gospel, is this, this transformative act is described as the new birth because Christians really are new. They're really changed. It's so radical and so transformative that it can only be described as being born again, as though you are someone different. So that's what John means by everyone who is born again. And he uses that terminology throughout this book because he wants to point out that christians are bear a similar family resemblance to god their heavenly father that's how he's used it throughout this book we covered that in chapter three and we won't go through that again but i'm just highlighting for you by way of review that's john's customary usage of the term being born again he uses it so that we can know that Christians are supposed to share a similar family likeness with God. We're supposed to share a resemblance to the one who caused us to be born again, our heavenly Father. So that's the first thing to observe. One is, he is referring to all Christians and there has been a radical change in every Christian. This is not unique to any one particular Christian. It's not like if we have the born again Christians and then the non-born again ones. No, that's not how it works. John identifies all Christians as those who have participated in the New World. The second thing is, we should observe that it is normative in the life of the Christian to not practice sin. In fact, John goes even further than this. He says that that's actually definitional of what a Christian is. This has been his consistent teaching to separate those who are genuine believers from those who are not. Within the realm of Christendom, This isn't some trait that is shared by the supermature. This isn't some trait that is uh, relegated only to pastors, to deacons, the anointed ones, those who who have the second blessing. This is a universal trait that is shared by all Christians. All Christians do not practice sin. To To be a Christian that practices sin is as much of an oxymoron as to speak of a wise fool, or true fiction. To take the words of wise fool" or "true fiction" in their literal sense would render the meaning of this word nonsensical. But the same would apply. The same exact thing would apply if we conceive of a Christian, general, their general life pattern to be one of and sin. But Christians do sin. You know that you sin. You should know from the time you woke up this morning that you are indeed a sinner. Christians do sin. So John isn't trying to point us here to some idea of sinless perfectionism. That's not what he's intending to say at all. He is trying to say, though, that Christians are not those who indulge in sin in such a way that they will not repudiate their sin. They will not repent of their sin when they're confronted about it, when it becomes aware to them. Those are excluded In the in the mind of John That is not his idea Of a Christian And it's important to know that John doesn't Have some particular sin in mind. He's not thinking here That Christians don't practice Scandalous sins He's not thinking here that you know In order to not be a Christian Then you have to be like a terrorist or something He's not thinking that you have to Go and make shipwreck of your life By going and a bunch of people that's not what is in view here at all any sin that isn't repented of forsaken and put to death is in view here and if a christian continues to practice those things without repentance john is of the view that you have not experienced the new birth and you're not a christian at all that's what he means here when he says Whoever is born of God does not keep on sinning. So in summary, it is normative for Christians to continue to not continue in unbroken patterns of unrepentant sin. Christians do sin. You know you sin, you know I sin. We have a prayer of confession every week because we know that we are sinners. It's not in some past tense way as though, you know, we sinned, you know, when we were five or 16 or something. No, we sin daily. We sin Week by week, we sin, month by month. That is our current reality. And that's consistent with John's theology. If we say we have no sin, we are liars. That's, again, sinless perfectionism Perfectionism isn't in view here. But any sin that a professing believer isn't prepared to forsake, but instead goes on practicing, John insists that that person is not born again. It demonstrates the falsehood of their So that's really a bit of review. We covered this primarily in chapter 3. We actually covered this again uh, in chapter 2. We've covered this uh, kind of extensively. So those are just key points that I wanted to highlight to you before we go into what is more the meat of our study. But if you spent more than two minutes in the faith, words like this should be astounding to you. What I mean by that is, If indeed the teaching here is that universally and normatively this is a shared characteristic for all Christians, in our lived experience that should come with a measure of bewilderment and shock to us that we are still within the faith. I'm sure that if you can just think for a little while about several decision points in your life, you can think about times in which you could have easily Easily, easily made a big fork in the road and departed from the Christian faith. Perhaps there have been days when your concern isn't merely that there are false converts in the church broadly, but maybe you might be one. Maybe you've had times when you were close to just utterly abandoning your spouse or kids and making a shipwreck of your faith. Or maybe you've thought about the temptation that so easily besets you, and can recall that it feels as though it's slowly tightening its grip on your heart. But forget about those big decision points. What about just battling the the discouragement and thinking that making one more step in the Christian life is like flapping your wings and trying to get to Ecuador? There are so many ways that we could multiply examples in the past or the present, where humanly speaking, we could have thought that we could have easily disengaged with christianity and just gone and given our lives over to sensuality and i want you to pause to consider that because i don't think that christians should get the idea that we are and we're building towards this we shouldn't get the idea that we are some sort of super spiritual giants and uh super spiritual uh, men and women of the faith that are so impervious to the uh, to our inward corruption, so impervious to temptation externally, that we can just walk on the path and it's so easy and it's so uh, simple for us to just keep following Jesus. That's not who you are. That's not. That isn't who you are as a Christian, as a believer. You are weak and you're frail, and as the sun goes, you are prone to wander. And there have been times I'm sure you can think of your, in your life. I can think of them in my life. I shared some of them with my brother Shamar, where it was like, "Wow, I do not know if I can continue on this Christian path." Your own sinful corruption is well capable of conjuring up such significant devils in your life and causing you to pursue, or causing you to pursue sinful passions. But if that wasn't enough john highlights for us in this verse that it isn't just your own sinful desires that you're up against it isn't just your own sinful desires that you have to subdue but there is an evil one or a devil who is actively seeking to snuff out your faith let's turn briefly then to look at what christians are up against believer there are dangers, toils, and snares that you will inevitably experience in your life. In our text, it appears self-evident that Satan is seeking to do harm to believers. We read in verse 18 that we are being protected from being touched by Satan or by the evil one. The English rendering of that word doesn't really quite do it justice because when you think about being touched by someone, you think about something gentle, something light, It's like if uh, John is saying here that what Satan is seeking to do is to just caress you or something. But we would be mistaken if we interpreted the word touch here to mean that Satan seeks to slightly bruise you. The Greek word here means that he is seeking to lay hold of you, to grasp you, to take control of you. If Satan could, he would sift everyone here like me, such that we would become so enamored with the things that he offers that we would forsake our lord and savior jesus christ that's the nature of what christians are up against It's nothing more than the orchestrated powers of hell and satan himself and the way that satan does this is by trying to steal away your hearts from the lord such that you pursue sin or by making you pursue and believe false teaching such that you are removed from The initial belief that you have, the saving power of the gospel. And don't be mistaken to think that John is talking about the people out there. That it's only the people out there that Satan is trying to influence and attack. He's talking about you. The reason Satan does not succeed, and we'll get to this, is because we're protected. But don't for a minute think that you are unassailable the powers of hell are directed at you they're saying in a similar way that they were directed at the apostle peter prior to jesus's crucifixion remember our lord told peter in luke 22 he said simon simon behold satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like me and though i admit that this is prior to the day of pentecost and so The holy spirit wasn't poured out as yet and and so we we believe that uh certainly at that time uh peter didn't have the same power and powerful ministry that we have uh, by the holy spirit but satan's aim at that time to peter who was a believer who was surely one of christ's sheep satan's aim was so that he would end up just like judas an apostate someone who fully and finally decided not to follow christ any longer don't for a moment think that you are not similarly targeted each and every day in some measure satan wants to ensure that the opposite of what john says here is true in your life he would love to accuse you before the throne of god and say we know that the one who is born again does practice sin." He wants to be able to make that accusation rightfully before God's throne. He would love to make a mockery of the work of God, and particularly the start of the new creation that we have each participated in through the new birth. He wants you to go back to Egypt and its ways, so to speak. Admittedly, this must be what John has thought happened to those who left the faith. As you know uh, from going through this book, and if you don't, I'll raise it now. At this time, there were a large group of believers who had seceded, or they had left, they had withdrawn themselves from the community of believers that John is addressing here. And they had left and departed Orthodox teaching. They had been laid hold of, in other words, by Satan himself. The power the power of Satan had actually pardon me the power of Satan had actually been realized in their life. Not not personally, but the God of this age, as he's called in many ways, had his influence spread over them and exerted over them such that they were drawn away from John's teaching. This is what the Christian is up against. We are up against the very powers of hell. (coughs) Pardon me. And we are in need of God's safekeeping. We're in need of his refuge. I raised the point earlier that we should be astounded that we are within the Christian faith. We should be astounded that we are still walking with the Lord. In light of our inward corruption and the desires and the works of the devil to cause us to give into our doubts and cause us to pursue our sinful passions, we should be astounded that we are still walking with the Lord. It should be evident to us that when we look at our lives, that it isn't your strength that is keeping you. It isn't your piety that causes you to stay devoted to Christ. The encouraging reality here is that God himself, they are saved. The second person of the Trinity protects you from getting so mixed up in your head that you depart from the gospel. Or from getting so enamored with the things of the world that you desire to pursue them and continue to practice sin. And that's the main idea of this text. Christians will not fall into the practice of sin and therefore demonstrate Christians will not fall into the practice of sin and therefore demonstrate that they have made a a shipwreck of their faith because they are protected from the one who is born. Referring to the Lord Jesus himself, who is called the only begotten of the Son in the Gospels. But in addition to just noticing the fact that Jesus Christ protects us, there are a few important points that I think are helpful for us before we make application in this text. And this is really the meat of this study. So let's just spend some time now and look at the nature of the protection that we're actually afforded by the Lord Jesus Christ first notice with me that the protection we receive is an ongoing reality we read in the text that the one who is born of god protects him not him in verse 18 of course is the believer but just note with me that protects here is in the present tense we believe that even the very words of scripture are inspired and it's not that john here casually uses the word protects by mistake what we're supposed to gather from the author's use of the word is that Jesus's protection of his sheep is a present and ongoing reality. His ministry towards you didn't stop at the cross. In other words, when Jesus hung on the cross and ascended into heaven, it wasn't as though Jesus just said it was a wrap and it was done. He just left you alone to figure things out and to walk along in this world on your own. That's not the nature of Christ's ministry to you. It's not as though he has just ceased from all activity. Truly, it can be said of Jesus, who, who is God himself, truly it can be said of him, that he who keeps Israel never slumbers nor sleeps. He's actively working on behalf of his people to protect them from getting so mixed up. On an ongoing basis, from getting so mixed up that they depart from the teaching of the gospel and from having their eyes so fully enamored with the things of the world and the temptations and lures of Satan that they go on practicing sin. Christ is the good shepherd who takes care of the sheep, who does not allow the, the sheep to be lost to the thieves and wolves that will seek to assail them. So that's the first thing to notice. Christ's protection of his people is an ongoing reality in their lives. Jesus hasn't ceased from working on behalf of his people. Quite the opposite. John writes to tell us that he's protecting his people from the powers of the evil one now. And more specifically, protecting them from the powers of the evil one such that they do not go on to practice sinning. Many of you have either read the book The Pilgrim's Progress or know You can recall the scene in John Bunyan's book where Christian gets to this wall where there's a burning fire, and in this scene there's a man who is continually trying to pour water on the fire such that it is extinguished, and Christian, the astute observer, notices that the fire continues to shine brighter and brighter. He asks the interpreter, well, what's going on here? I don't understand this. Water is being poured on. You know, the not naturally you would expect for the fire to go out or to at least be extinguished in some way. The interpreter carries him behind the wall where he sees another man secretly pouring oil into the fire such that it keeps burning. The analogy is in rocket science. The fire is the work of grace originally brought in the heart of the believer. And the man with the water is the devil, seeking to extinguish the the faith of the believer, seeking to snuff it out. But while Satan is at work trying to quench the flame, God sustains the believer secretly and imperceptibly. That's the second point I want to to make to you. Even though the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, is not an infallible work, it's not inherent in any way, but the, the picture that it paints for us is useful for us in thinking about this god sustains the believer secretly and imperceptibly it isn't as though you can look around and see moment by moment how christ is guarding you from being led astray it isn't as though you get some tingly feeling each time it happens it isn't as though it's voice activated or anything like that that's not the case god's work of grace for his people are imperceptible in the same way that there's a man secretly pouring oil on the fire in the pilgrim's darkness. It's imperceptible. That's the nature of God's work of preservation. It's ongoing and it's imperceptible. It can't be perceived with the five sentences. Our text has at least one final point that I think is probably the most important. Lastly, the work that Jesus does to protect his people is all of grace. You don't have to be the most brilliant reader to recognize that in our text there's no explicit mention that we and the lord jesus are here working together to preserve us we don't have written in our text the words the one who is the one who is born of god protects him graciously we don't have that written in the text so we have to take it by necessary inference we don't have explicit mention that god's work of protecting his people is of grace or the nature of it is gratuitous we don't have that i admit that no problem but my question to you is where does it say in the text that the lord receives help from you in doing any work of preserving his own there's no mention here that we assist in any way As we have looked at in the Gospel of John, when Pastor John was going through the book, in chapter 10, you may recall that Jesus has been given a people by the Father. This group of persons are kept by him, and none are able to snatch him out of his hand. And more than that, the Father who is greater than Jesus, obviously, humanly speaking, the Father who is greater than Jesus, none is able to snatch him out of his hand. We are kept by the Father and preserved graciously it isn't our own effort it's not your own intellect they're saying that keeps you on the path of christianity it's not the strength of your piety it's not the goodness of the home that you grew up in that allows you to stay on the path of christianity none of those things it is a pure act of grace by which you stand we did not begin the christian race by our own efforts and we will not finish the Christian race by our own efforts. This may be quite deflating, but as each and every one of us have our own various giftings and abilities, we have to remember that we're still ordinary sinners. We're still people who are unable to walk unless the Lord holds our hands. This is a humbling truth that leaves no room for boasting in ourselves. Only room for boasting in the Lord. So as we move closer to the conclusion of, our, of today's message, I really only have two applications. To sum up, the three things I wanted you to observe about the nature of the Lord's preservation is that one, it comes to us imperceptibly. It is a continual work, and it is a work that is all of grace. It is not a work that we participate in. We don't keep ourselves, as we'll sing afterward we could never keep our hold if it was finally and ultimately reliant on us in order to lay hold of christ and keep our hold upon christ we would utterly fail in the words of john macarthur if the preservation of salvation depends on what believers themselves do or not do their salvation is only as secure as their faithfulness which provides no security at all Grace has led us thus far, and grace will lead us home. It is by grace that you are kept and preserved your sake. By way of application, the first thing that I want you to uh, recognize and to apply from this text is that because the work of God is imperceptible and continuous and gracious, it requires an act of faith on our part we don't we can't perceive it with our senses it's not as though we contribute to it that isn't the case it's an act that we have there's an act of faith there's an act of trust that we have to extend to the lord jesus in our uh, laying hold of this truth it isn't something that we can see with our hands sorry see with our eyes touch with our hands It is an act of grace that is imperceptible to us and so we must believe and trust the lord for his faithfulness that he will by the spirit keep his people that he will indeed work in us to will and to do that which is his good pleasure we must trust and believe that he will do that salvation is all of grace and we can glorify the lord in our lives when we look away from ourselves and Trust that finally and decisively we will be kept by the Lord Jesus. So that's the first point of application We have to trust in the Lord's work of preservation. There's nothing that you can do You can't do anything to contribute to it. You have to trust that the Lord will indeed be preserved He has gone to the cross on your behalf the Lord Jesus He's bled and died and he will lose nothing for which he has come to save nothing at all for which the blood of christ was spilled will be lost there is no drop of blood that was spilled in a needless manner there's no drop of blood that will go to waste no christ will have his own and christ will keep his own so we have to believe and trust that god will work his work his salvation out in your life in such a way that he will keep you the second point of application I want to make may seem contrary to what i just said but we are not hypercalvinists by that i mean we don't believe that because the work of the lord is to preserve his people that means that it doesn't matter how you live your life that means it doesn't matter what you do in your life what you believe we're not hypercalvinists it isn't that once saved always saved means that want saved you can live any way you like we that's why we started at the beginning by talking about the one who is born of god does not keep on sinning. you can't just say well oh i got saved on a tuesday in 1999 and the lord is preserving me so i would just do what i want no that's not the case at all the work of preservation that the lord jesus accomplishes for his people results in then forsaking the lures of the devil and ultimately avoiding the practice of sin. In other words, God's work of preservation actually bears itself up in our lives. We can't then claim to be preserved from grace and indulge in sin. As we walked through this passage, we made note of that, that we can't be considered born again and still practice sin. And though the reason for that is because the Lord Jesus doesn't allow us to veer so far off of the path that we end up in hell. Though the reason is that the Lord is preserving preserving his people. There are decisions made each and every day along the road. There are forks, as Pastor John raised the other day. There are forks in the road. There are decisions made each and every day where you will decide to follow Christ or you won't where you will decide that you're either going forward with Christ, the cross before me and the world behind me, or you'll turn back and you'll go back to the world. There are moments and decisions to be made day by day. So my, the point I want to raise with you is that though we are preserved imperceptibly, though it is true that Christians will be protected from finally Falling away from Christ. This doesn't mean that there is in your life and living out your life that there's no effort that you have to play. We actually have an enemy to resist and sin to put to death. We are not supposed to be giving any place to the devil. There, his aim ordinarily is to cause you to do to do sin. And when we talk about doing sin, we're not talking about doing the most glaring and obvious sins. Satan would be quite content for you to dabble a little bit here in this sin and then dabble a little bit here in this one and numb you to the fact that you are going to your own peril. That would be quite fine with Satan. So we are supposed to be seeking to put to death even the smallest of sins. In the same way that you would only think a person a fool or mentally deranged person If they saw a few strands of their clothes catch a fire and they nonchalantly go about their day and say, Oh, well, no big deal, you know, just a couple strings on my shirt burning, no problem. In the same way that you would be like, What? That makes absolutely no sense. You should see similarly giving any place to sin in your life in, in the same vein. We should seek to stamp out and snuff out any hint of sin in our life, giving no place or opportunity to the devil. Friends, there are dangers, toils, and snares that we experience in the Christian life. There are dangers, toils, and snares. And without God's preservation, without God's work to keep us from fully and finally abandoning Christ, without God's work of allowing us to not get so mixed up in the faith that we go and believe some other gospel. Without that work, we would certainly abandon the faith. Praise God for that work. But at the same time, we ought to be giving diligence and effort to our Christian life. The Lord will ensure that His people are preserved and kept until the day of redemption. We can be confident that He will accomplish this work. He won't allow us to get mixed up. He who is the keeper of Israel will preserve his people. He does it imperceptibly. He does it as an ongoing work in the lives of believers, and it's all a work of grace. Trust in that work then, even as you strive to mortify sin in your own life and pursue holiness.